You're listening to The Snap Hook with Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Join us as we take a look at all things sports and politics in the world that we live in today. Yeah, I, I don't want to share a beer with the leader of the free world at the end of the day, right? Over 300 house races are non If you look through, it's been Republicans in charge. We try and help you understand the political news by comparing it to our sports stories of the day. And just like a snap hook, we're coming in from the left side of the fairway. People who are in control of things decide this person has displeased us. Costello, he's Scott Barzilla, and we are happy to have you joining us for our first time on air. Absolutely, it's great to be here. Um, and kind of to lead us off, and, and this is this is coming from the teacher side of me. So if you if you stumbled onto Snap Hook here, you're probably thinking, who are these guys? Why should I be here? What do they have to say? Why should I listen to them? And so that's where I, you know, I wanted to start this thing off just to say like number uh, two things. Tim and I have known each other off and on for, what'd you say, about 15 plus years? Uh, yeah, between 15 and 17 now, I'd say. So, and, and he was a, uh, coming through getting confirmed at, at the church and I was uh, volunteering. And so that's, uh, and, and Tim's always, uh, and he obviously played for the Clear Lake golf team, which I did as well, maybe a few years before he did. Um, and so, you know, we have a lot in common. Plus I remember, you know, him doing a faith sharing based entirely around the Rocky movies, which was, you know, absolutely the, the, the best thing I'd ever heard. Um, so, you know, we decided to get together you know, and kind of throw these things together. So just to give you, you know, a, a brief biography of each of us, I'll, I'll just go with myself. I've been in education for 25 years, uh, doing different things. Uh, I've been a counselor. I've been all the way down to bus driver. Uh, teacher in the classroom. Now I'm a facilitator, uh, helping out in other teachers' classrooms, and and you know also write a ton. Uh, I have my own blog at uh, HallofFameIndex.com, which is also the title of my two books that I've written on the Hall of Fame, which we, we will get into Hall of Fame talk later. Uh, but I also write for uh, Juanita Jeans at the Beauty Salon under an assumed name. And I've also write for Battle Red Blog, uh, which is a Houston, Texas site. So do a whole lot of writing. I'm going to pass you off to Tim. Let Tim give you a back some background on himself. Yeah, Scott, as you know, you are a teacher, and as you said, we've got a kind of got to lay out the syllabus here for uh, for the semester for our listeners. But you know, a little bit about myself. I um, not a writer. I've been a broadcaster now for uh, about ten years. Uh, started with the then Sugarland Skeeters, um, now the uh, Sugarland Space Cowboys, the AAA affiliate for the Houston Astros. Uh, I then uh, worked for KBRZ Sports in Houston. I covered pretty much all things Fort Bend ISD as well as the Sugarland Skeeters. Uh, once I transitioned out of that role, I, I had an opportunity uh, to be the, the head of broadcasting for uh, a team in Grand Prairie called the Texas Airhawks where – uh, we actually were the, the first team to ever host 
uh, another nation's uh, Olympic team uh, on our roster in independent baseball. And so uh, I've been doing podcasts for you know ten or twelve years now. I've I've called live sports. I've I've also written for some blogs. I wrote I wrote for um, the the Daily Cougar when I was uh, in college at the University of Houston, covering all things pro sports in Houston. Uh, and then you know here in the last five or six years or so, uh, I've become very interested in politics, and that's kind of where you and I reconnected a little bit, Scott. Is um, you know as I left Clear Lake, uh, you know, a, a bastion of conservativeness uh, and, and set out on my own and, and had an opportunity to live on a minor league salary. Uh, I learned a lot about how this country we live in works and, and who's represented and who's paid attention to and, and things along that nature. And, and at that point, I, I started paying attention to a lot more things, start being a lot more politically active. Uh, and that's kind of brought us to where we are here today, where you and I are uh, link it back up, and we're going to find a way to uh, draw connections between the sports world and, and the political world and, and see if we can help some people understand some of these things that we talk about by drawing those comparisons to sports and politics. Absolutely. And so, you know, today, leading us off, since this is our inaugural edition, um, I wanted to talk about issue framing in general, because everything we're going to talk about, you know, in subsequent episodes which will probably throw in some current events. You know, we, we, we have a kind of general idea of where we want to go, but uh, just like you know, your late night talk show host, the events of the day are going to kind of dominate, you know, what, what's going to happen here. And, and so issue framing, I kind of got interested in that. I read a book uh, called Cracking the Code by Tom Hartman, which I, I don't know if you've heard of him. Right, I uh, haven't. He used to, uh, he was on Air America for a while. I don't know if he's still doing that but um the the one lone bastion of of liberal talk radio which you know kind of you know we'll, we'll we'll dive into that but the whole idea of issue, issue framing is that how we feel about any particular topic has been put into a box by you know multiple sides and so whoever gets to shape how that issue is framed is going to win that issue. And, and just, you know, we, we had a few ideas to, you know, go off the top when we were talking about the show rundown. And, you know, the first is to go into the sports world is the, uh, the LIV tour, or the live tour. Um, and we might have different thoughts on this. I don't know. But uh, that cropped up this year. And, of course, you know, in the golfing world, which, you know, we both, you know, pay some attention to, uh, that's obviously caused a big, huge controversy. Yeah, you know, amongst the top golfers. Yeah, absolutely. It's I, I honestly I, I think as we get into it, you and I are gonna probably have pretty similar thought processes on live, but you know, to me, framing is you know, think back to when you were a kid playing Little League for the first time or, you know, getting out there and there's always that catcher for one team or another who tried to bring every pitch way back outside to the corner. Now, whether you know, Everybody in the stadium knew it was a ball, but there's that one catcher he thought he knew how to frame um, who would just try and take absolute garbage and turn it into a strike. Um, and sadly, <laughs> I feel like that's where we are right now, in especially the mainstream media, uh, you know, specifically Republican mainstream media, is they're that literally kid who doesn't know how to actually frame a pitch, and they're just trying to bring everything back for a strike. 
you know, at some point you got to let some crap go by, but these kids are just trying to frame everything. And so I think, you know, getting back to, to live, um, I disagree with it. I think it's, I think it's what's called sports washing where they're trying to, uh, the Saudi government is trying to make themselves look better in the landscape of the world by, um, you know, paying money for the sports league. They're doing the same thing for a cricket league. Um, it's 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 not what I would be in favor of, but I do think it's it's got blown up to a, a very big talking point, and a lot of it's been blown up into what courses are being used. You've got Donald Trump, you know, welcoming people with open arms to his courses for the Live Tour, and they're turning it into a political political argument. When at the end of the day, it's, you know, two rival golf tours run one by a guy who's, you know, with all due respect, kind of a prick in Greg Norman and one run by a guy who's kind of an elitist in, in Jay Monahan, who's not really in touch with anyone. But now we've framed it and we've turned it into a political hotspot uh, because we need time on CNN. We need time on Fox News. And for some reason, this this golf issue um, is now a political one because we're playing at Trump courses like Doral and, and Trump National and things like that. Well, and what kills me, and I, you know, I, I'm not nearly as good at golf as you are. You know, when I was playing at Lake, I was shooting low 80s. And then I'd go to tournaments and shoot higher than low 80s. Um, so, you know, that was my career. But, you know, what kind of gets me about Liv it, because their their tour is set up so differently, you know they're paying guys an automatic appearance fee. So you would think, you know, the people that would be into this would be your marginal guys who are on you know the second or ter- third tour, and 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 so you know one of the guys that we go out on a golfing weekend once a year. Uh, of course, you're you're invited. I know you're you're not going to be able to go this year, but you know maybe you can go in future years. And one of them has a son who's on that second or third tour, uh, playing a lot in South America, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and he's one of those guys. And I think, you know, just listening to the description of his game, probably just the big problem is he's just not long enough. Okay. <clears throat> but, you know, he'll shoot high 60s, you know, fairly consistently. See, to me, lift tour would be perfect for a guy like that. You get automatic money. The guys who are in the top 10, you're making money wherever you go. You're getting endorsements out the wazoo. So why not stay on the PGA Tour and compete? <coughs> it's, they framed it. And again, it goes back to that framing issue. They, they framed it into a, uh, a player's rights thought process, right? Like these guys on the PGA Tour, it started with Phil. <coughs> Phil... Phil has to constantly be the smartest guy in the room. You know, I've read a few books on Phil, including the one that Jay Shipnuff wrote called Phil. Um, and Phil got obsessed with the NFT, the, the owning your shots, the, um, you know, and he did get frustrated because he had to pay uh, the PGA Tour some like a million bucks to be able to use any of his highlights when he went and did the stuff with the match. But at the end of the day, you're right. You If you're really a top 100 golfer in the world you made at least a million dollars minimum in in prize money alone on the pga tour and, <coughs> and you can look at the lpga tour the top 100 per the number one person on 
when number 100 person on the LPGA Tour made like 100 grand max, and the number 100 person on the PGA Tour made more than a million dollars, and that's just prize money alone. So you're, you're absolutely right when you talk about the money that these guys are claiming that they don't get to make. It's it's about being able to deuce it after like five years if you want to, I feel like. If you look at a Cameron Smith who, by all accounts, doesn't want to play golf for the rest of his life. He wants to play like five more years and then retire, and he's trying to make as much money as he possibly can now and then get out. And well, the way that Liv is set up where if you came over early and you're one of the owners of these teams – you know, especially guys like Phil, like Dustin Johnson, where they're in the twilight years. You know, Dustin has some dominant years left, but realistically, you know, he's in the latter half of his career. So now, instead of playing on the senior tour, now you're a team owner. Now you're you're out there as a, uh, a, a visionary for these young players, helping them come along. I don't care about live right now, but I think five years from now, if this team thing works out and some of these older guys are now the savants, the way that Bubba Watson was as he was injured and he was out there coaching his team, I'm more interested in that. And what's frustrating is those worlds could coexist with the PGA Tour if they could get off their high horses, because I think that's a fun environment. But again, the way this whole thing has been framed of us versus them never going to happen right and what you want and, and in a perfect world what you want is you want your dustin johnson's you want your rory rory mcelroy's you want um i mean phil's not really going to be competitive for that much longer i mean he he's not competitive he, now he's the oldest to win a major which is you know that that's that's a nice thing but it's those guys that are in their 30s and early 40s you want them to be able to compete those last four or five years, at least in your four major championships. And then maybe the players championship too, if that's, you know, if that's where you want to go. Uh, but the whole idea of, of shunning them and saying, well, if you chose this, we're not going to let you back here. What are you doing? I mean, you're depriving, you know, I would love to be able to go to the masters someday and watch. And I want the best 144 golfers you can find. I mean, that's what makes the tournament fun. I mean, you watch somebody go in there and shoot, you know, and both extremes are fun to me. Like, you know, if you see somebody shoot 62, 63, that's a blast. Seeing somebody go on Amen Corner and take an eight on that little par three, that's also a blast. A little shot and throw there, but it's okay. And and, Because what most of us are thinking, like, yeah, I could shoot an eight on this hole. Yeah, I could do that. But that's you want the the very best. And if you're going to shun those guys, you're going to uh, if you're going to lock them out, it's just not going to be as good a product. And I think what's interesting there is it's not the PGA Tour that's locking guys out of the majors. It's going to be that official world golf ranking. And so right now if you're a former major champion, which a lot of the guys who went over, they grabbed a lot of major champions initially, so they would have those guaranteed invites to majors over the next five years, hoping that the world golf ranking scenario gets worked out and they can still get the invitations to the majors. That's my thought on it, because a guy like Cam Smith, he's he's going to be at the Masters for the next five years. Uh, Dustin Johnson has you know automatic invite to the Masters every single year, but it's it's the other guys, the Mito Pereiras, you know, the Sergio Ramoses, those kind of guys who are uh, going over there who, you know, the Harold Varners of the world, 
you know, honestly, do you care if you see Harold Varner at the Masters or not? I, I don't know. But at the end of the day, until the World Golf Rankings recognizes the Live Tour, which as of right now, they don't, um, it's not going to happen. Now, you know, what the World Golf Rankings and Live conversation, I think that's a whole other animal because the World Golf Rankings sent Live, hey, here's how you get points. Here's how you do it. And they flipped them the finger, said, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to still get all these other guys over here. And then basically, because we have all these great players, we're going to put pressure on you to change your system because you can't live in a world where Dustin Johnson is the 150th ranked player in the world because everybody knows he's not the 150th ranked player in the world. And it makes your system look useless. And that's what Liv has done to the world golf rankings. Yeah. Um, just to kind of... Uh... Switch gears here for a minute. We're going to throw us back into politics. And so I'm just going to tell a little personal story uh, behind issue framing. And when we've looked over the last, I would say, at least decade or more, uh, healthcare reform, I'm going to use those three words, has been, you know, probably the single b- biggest issue maybe throughout that time. How you frame healthcare reform. Just those three words shows you where everything is wrong. It's not healthcare reform. It's insurance reform. That's what, what we're looking at. Uh, three years ago, uh, just about almost to this day, um, I ended up going into the hospital with a staph infection in my foot. Uh, almost lost the foot, actually. Uh, and they ended up, you know, I went for six weeks, had to, uh, get all that stuff worried out, and in the process was diagnosed with diabetes, which uh, I don't know how many people know too much about diabetes, but it's it's a fairly progressive disease, affects a lot of different things. And so I've been going to doctors probably weekly, just depending on what doctor you're talking about, eye doctor, foot doctor, you know, um, diabetes doctor, um, you know, just you name it. And what I've noticed, and when I went to the hospital, so that was three years ago, I was in for six days. If you looked at the actual charge before insurance did anything, it ended up being $100,000. I had one surgical procedure. So they was just, you know, monitoring me for six days. And I think, we, you know, we ended up paying less than 10000 or, you know, it, it, it ended up being... A huge amount, but the whole idea of healthcare reform is going to scare a lot of people. Because when you hear healthcare reform, you're hearing, well, there's something wrong with the, you know, standard of care that we're getting in this country. Which I don't know if that's really the case. What I think is really the case is there is a problem with the amount that we're paying for the standard of care in our country. And so if you were to frame it as, Insurance reform, I mean, let's go with a couple of facts here. Number one, we are the only industrialized country in the world that, has, that allows for-profit health care insurance. The only one in the world. There are a few in Europe that do private insurance, but that's something that the government contracts out, give them an administrative fee to run it, and that's all they get. But here... We allow people with probably bachelor's degrees and who knows what deciding what care I should get 
when I go into the hospital or deciding which hospital I should go to. So that's the problem that we're having. And then the second problem, of course, is that it's tied to your employer. So uh, luckily I'm on my, under my wife's insurance because I'm sure, you know, your wife's a teacher. I'm sure you know that that insurance is not very good at all. And so I'm lucky that my wife works for a Fortune 500 company, so the, the care we get is a little bit better. But the point is, is that if we wanted to, let's say, start a business, that the Republicans are always talking about people, you know, taking you know, the chances to start a business. What happens to my health care? It's gone because it's tied to the employer. Now, you know, there are a lot of different plans out there, but I think when we start the conversation, we start the conversation at how do we talk about this? If we talk about it like it's healthcare reform, what we're saying is doctors, you got to do better. Nurses, you got to do better. I don't want to tell them that. If we say it's health insurance reform, then we're zeroing in on the problem. Yeah, absolutely. But I think... And again, this again that big that big F word we've been saying all show it goes back to framing. There are, you know, fifteen to twenty well-paid gentlemen and and females who walk up and down the halls of Congress, and they write checks on behalf of the insurance companies to each and every one of those Congress people, whether they're Republican or Democrat. So that way, it will number one never be called insurance reform. Because that's what lobbyists do, is they make sure that things are framed in a way that, that their employers are going to be happy with. And so as long as we allow lobbyists to come in and do what they do, and as long as we uh, want to deem that money equals free speech in this country, we're never going to get it. Because healthcare insurance companies are just going to keep funneling money into campaign donations. And at the end of the day, we've seen it time and time again. You know, I've been watch. I watch The West Wing. I'm, I'm a, I like the show, and every now and then I like to, you know, sit down and live in this world where the politics aren't crazy. Uh, that show started in like 1997. Season one, they're talking about socialized healthcare. In 1997, you know, that's uh, like thir- 25, 26 years ago that they were having this conversation, and we still can't get it done. Because at the end of the day, there's a group of insurance companies that have way too much money at risk. And also, the hospitals aren't innocent. It's maybe not the nurses and doctors, but there's people in that billing office who racked your bill up to $100,000 knowing the insurance company's going to pay most of it anyway. And they're going to make, you know, $12 Tylenol happen. And that's a cheap Tylenol in a hospital, right? Like sometimes they charge you 200 bucks for a pillow because it came in a plastic bag before you got there. They rack those charges up knowing that you're only, oh, I only had to pay 10000 of the 100000 out of pocket. So that way, you, in your mind, they've preconditioned you to feel like, okay, I, you know, I didn't have to pay as much as it could have been. Well, it shouldn't have even been 10000 at the end of the day. You walk into Canada, and you walk right out of the hospital at the end of that procedure, and you owe nothing. And people want to talk terribly about socialized health care, and they always point to the, the waiting times in Canada for certain procedures. We're the only country in the world that has a health care a first world country uh, that has a health care system like we do. There's other countries that use socialized medicine very, very well. And let's, you know, it's it's ridiculous. I, I, I can't stand the 
the argument against socialized health care. And you, th you would have thought during COVID when people were losing their jobs left and right, and as you said, your health care was tied to your employment, that would have been the time to, to look at that as a country. That would have been the time to step in and say, hey, we're done with this crap. But instead, well, we didn't. Well, what kills me, and this is, you know, you talk about waiting. So this past Thursday, I go in for a biopsy. My kidney doctor is time. It's very important. We get this biopsy done now. So I take two days off work. We get it done now. I called them up, you know, on Monday. Says, oh, you know, when am I going to get the results? Oh, we're going to see you February 24th. You're like, uh, what? I'm waiting a month? What, what, what am I doing? Um, but you know, you want to talk about the money getting involved. Let's go. Let, let's let's take the time machine back to when the ACA was being de uh, debated. Which you want to talk about framing? What do we call it now? We call it Obamacare. Right. When you ask people about the Affordable Care Act and you tell them the planks in it, they say, "Yeah, man, that's that's good stuff." What do you think about Obamacare? Oh, I hate it. It's the same thing, but. The Senate has a 60-40 majority. The Democrats control the Senate at the time. They have a filibuster-proof Senate at the time. So the very first thing we're going to include, we're not going to go Medicare for all. We're not doing that. That would be wild and just weird. We're going to include a public option. So what did they do? They talked to their lobbyists. They talk to Republicans who are not going to vote for it anyway. The Republicans say, well, we're not going to vote for it if the public option's involved. Folks, they're not voting for that anyway. Just pass the damn thing with a public option. But why do the lobbyists not want a public option? Because they know they can't compete. Because when you look at Medicare, the cost and the overhead, the administrative cost, under 5%. Yeah, under 5%. If you look at your standard for profit insurance, over 20. I mean, there's a huge difference. And when you look at, you know, healthcare as a whole, I mean, we've got the triangle. We've brought up two wings of the triangle. You brought up the hospitals. Yeah, there, there's the $12 Tylenol or $120, you know, $200 pillow. But, you know, with, with the insurance company then on top, we do have the pharmaceutical companies that fit that third wing of the triangle. And there's, there's obviously some stuff that goes on there. Now, on the one hand, you know, my, my wife happens to you know, be a uh, doctorate in bioengineering, so unfortunately I know a little bit more about this stuff than I probably should. But one of the reasons why the pills take, you know, cost so much is the first pill costs millions of dollars. Right. Then after that, you know, they become uh, especially cheaper. But obviously there's a lot that goes on here that doesn't have anything to do with the talent that doctors, nurses, and pharmaceutical people have. And so when we frame it as in healthcare reform, again, what we're framing, what we're telling people is these people are greedy or these people aren't good enough. When most of the problems have nothing to do with that. It's about how much are we charging you? I mean, if you imagine Medicare for all, I had to go to Clear Lake Regional. I don't know if you were ever spent any time at that hospital. I have not. I was actually at St. John's back when it was still 
still there. They'll look back behind where the Fuddruckers was. Oh, it's still there. It's still there. It's actually become... St. John's, yeah. Yeah, it's become a kind of a borg. You know, it's kind of taking over that whole complex. Well, when I was in the hospital for six days, I was in St. John's. And when I was in St. John's, for every meal, a nutritionist would come by and say, here are your options. We know you're diabetic, so here's what we would suggest. And that's the food I got. I go into Clear Lake Regional. I'm not, great. I'm not there for one day. I'm like asking, oh, seven o'clock. When's dinner? Oh, they just threw something on my, you know, on my table, and then come in for breakfast the next morning. It's like, oh, well, okay, here, here you go. And it's like, wait a minute. Now, if I had a choice of where I wanted to go, where would I go? St. John's, obviously. Go to St. John's, obviously, but. If my insurer says, nope, you got to go here. See, if you had Medicare for all, all the hospitals would be available to you. So now the hospitals have to compete to get patients. So are we going to charge you $100 for that Tylenol? Not if we think you're, you know, we're clear like regional and you're going to go to St. John's. Now we got to start lowering prices. Now we have to stop. They're going to start improving our care because we're competing for you. Instead of having Aetna say, well, you're going over here. Blue Cross Bruce Shields say, no, nah, you're going over here. And, and then whatever else say, no, nah, you're going to go over here. No. Nah. And that's, that's why it's – but that's why they frame these things the way they do because at the end of the day, there's too much money to be lost by the billionaires at the top to let us have that choice. That's why our health insurance is tied to our employment, because they don't want us as a working society to be able to say, screw this job, I quit, because you and your entire family's health insurance is tied to that job. They know you can probably find another job, but they also know that it takes two months for your health insurance and everything to get there. So now your family's without health insurance. You're going to have to go to COPE or COPE is expensive. So these are all incentives or disincentives to keep you from leaving your, your place of employment to go look for new work, all based on your health care. So this is this is the reason it's set up the way it is. And, you know, again, we can get into personal beliefs and things like that as the show goes on. But I think mine will pretty much spell themselves out. Um you know, the reason our health insurance is set up the way it is is to keep us locked in our positions at work, to keep capital flowing upwards to the top, and to, to make sure that we don't have that freedom of choice to go start a competing business that could possibly take money away from our current employers because we'd lose our health insurance in the process, as you mentioned. Okay. Now I want to switch us back to sports here because uh, I think we've, we've knocked the healthcare thing. We'll talk about that later in another episode. but. Uh, you and I are huge lovers of baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you're, you're broadcasting, which actually, when I was leaving high school, that was my dream. And, you know, I didn't do it. Um, I guess I chickened out, became a teacher. You know, however, you know, you want to, <laughs> you want to phrase that. Cause I, you know, you're, you're going to struggle for a few years until you, you make it big. I struggled for a few years yeah. myself for sure. Yeah. No. And, and and that's what I knew about, you know, when I, some of the friends I knew in broadcast journalism, like starting off making $12,000 and I'm like, good Lord, you know, I, I can't do that. But baseball, issue framing, put these two things together. 
the most successful sport in this country by a long shot is the NFL. NFL's king. Especially when you look at dollars and cents, right? They're the most profitable thing in America right now, sports-wise. Think about what's the focus of the NFL. And to me, the focus of the NFL is, number one, how can we get more eyeballs? So that's when they, you know, they've gotten come up with the idea of, hey, let's go on Amazon. That's the new thing. That works. Hey, let's, you know, let's get gambling involved. Let's make some deals with these, you know, with these gambling sites. And then they're also working on promoting their product. Look at baseball. And I'm just going to come right out and say it. Manfred is... If, if I didn't know it was possible to be worse than Bud Seeley, yep. But he he's found a way. I I he, couldn't agree with you more. He's found a way to dig. And my number one thing, and this is why I think he's a bad commissioner. We can go into the Astros stuff, and I'm sure we will, because uh, we're both big Astros fans. But let, let's ignore the Astros for a second. Put them off to the side. To me, if you're a commissioner of a sport. And we know how much money Roger Goodell makes. We know how much money Manfred makes. They make a ton of money. You have to love your game. That's the number one requirement to me. You cannot be the commissioner of baseball and not like baseball. And how do I know that Manfred doesn't love baseball? Because all we talk about is what's wrong with baseball. The game's too long. There's not enough action. Oh, we've got too many strikeouts. We got too many walks. We got too many home runs. Let's do a pitching clock. Let's uh, you know, let, let's do an automatic strike zone, which actually I might be in favor of. But I, but, I am in favor yeah. of the strike zone too. But but I mean, we're talking about let's make the bases bigger. I'm in well, favor of that one too. Yeah, but the whole thing is what but is everything else. I'm with you. But the, what the is bases the, is a safety thing for me. I think it makes sense. What is the focus, though? And that is the focus of the game. And to would me, it be, would it be fair to say there is no focus for baseball? Like, I, I don't see a focus for Rob Manfred. I honestly don't think he has a here's the goal for 2023. I, I don't see it. I, I don't think he has a coherent goal. But I think he's addressing what he sees as issues. I have to put air quotes around that for those of y'all listening in. I mean, this is where, you know, we're talking about the, the sticky tack we, we brought up, you know, kind of in show prep. The whole, you know, the cheating scandal. So let's think about why the che- To me, how he handled the cheating ca- scandal was so, it, it was Solomon splitting the baby. Which, you know, when you're reading the Bible, sounds like a wonderful idea, but is absolutely stupid in real life. So what did he do? He could have ignored it, and it would have gone away. People wouldn't have cared. Honestly, People Scott, I think, he, I think he planned to ignore it. I think Mike Fires forced his hand there. I think he had no intention of ever letting that come to light. But what, he, what could he have also done? He could have sat there and said, you know what we're going to do right now? Bam. We're going to investigate all 30 teams. And we're going to get to the bottom and see how many of these teams are actually doing it. Because, you know, you and I both know, we could go back in baseball history. We the could Indians' oh, last World Series win came off the stealing signs, literally using a flag in this, off the center field scoreboard. We could, yeah. The shot heard around the world, 1951. 
the very rudimentary you know technology back then, but they found a way to do it. Tundra Russa in the 80s with the White Sox found a way to do it. Obviously, you know, the Yankees and the Red Sox were caught doing it. They kind of swept that under the rug, which is a kind of a different story for a different day. But see, here's my thing. We can forget about that for a second. Who are the very best players in baseball? And how much do the common fan really know about them? See, to me, if you look just over the last decade, Mike Trout is going to go down as a top five all-time center fielder at worst. At worst. Maybe top three. What do we know about him? You have Otani, who's probably the best you know, story in baseball since Babe Ruth. What do we know about him? Do we know anything about him? And no, so you're right. I think I think it's going to get better here in the next three to four years. Baseball is sadly about five years behind the times on how they're going to use social media, but you're starting to see it. You know, guys like like Ben Verlander uh, are really doing a nice job of going out during the season and, and doing some stuff one on one with some of these players to help get their stories out there. Uh, you've got things like the uh, I think it's called the the Cespedes backyard barbecue. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Let's see. You know, guys, there's baseball starting to to steer into you know the podcaster world a little bit, but sadly, they're five years behind, right? Because when you look at look at the NFL, um, you know the Kelsey brothers themselves have a fantastic podcast that they do week in and week out, to where uh, you know uh, an NFL lineman can now be picked off the street and Jason Kelsey, who I guarantee you, um, you know, majority of, of people could walk right by, say, Hunter Brown in Houston and have no clue that they just walked right by Hunter Brown in Houston. And some of you may not even know who Hunter Brown is right now, but I guarantee you, you know who Jason Kelsey is, and that guy's the center. He's not even a skill position player for the Philadelphia Eagles, but he is a personality that is now well-known in the NFL because they have steered into the social media, the podcast, the Twitter, uh, and really TikTok and Instagram type videos. The, the 30 to 45 second videos, the NFL was made for that. Think back to, was it like the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, where you had those those VHS tapes that would come out, you know, NFL's greatest hits, the Follies, all that stuff. Like, NFL was perfect for that. Baseball, you need to set it up. But, you know, baseball's best highlights come with an understanding of where we're at in the game. You know, there's, you know, two men on, two out, bottom of the ninth inning, trailing by a run, so-and-so's at the plate. You kind of need that understanding, in my opinion at least, to enjoy a baseball highlight. I can watch one play from an NFL game and go, that was a nice play. And it's just, that's the difference in, in those games. But because of, of football's adapted early to everything, though. Look at... When you mentioned gambling, the reason football surpassed baseball in this country is fantasy football. The ability to essentially bet on your football knowledge week in and week out uh, allowed people to feel a lot more invested and to watch more games, to get things like Sunday Ticket out there, to be able to watch all your te- all the, all the games anywhere, even without blackouts, minus your own home team, obviously. But you know things like Red Zone. Could you imagine a a red zone type channel for major league baseball, you know, like 
I don't know what that is. Like when runners get in scoring position, we go to the game. Like I don't know what it is, but why do why have we never looked at something like that? There's just football has taken it to the limit. They pushed limits, and you even mentioned the Amazon thing. That's not even working for them. They, they've actually lost viewers on Thursday night through Amazon. But at the end of the day, they were willing to try a new medium. They're willing to say, let's test this out. Baseball is always the last to get there. They are the traditionalists. They're the last to get replay. They're the last to use technology. They're the last to get onto streaming services. It is always a forced hand with Major League Baseball. And, and you're right. I don't think Manfred loves the game enough to want to preserve it and bring new fans to the game that he loves. Well, and let's let's tack on to the whole streaming thing. So we we unplugged. Shoot, it's been at least ten years Same. that we unplugged. And the reason why we did is we did Directv, and they got our bill wrong twelve consecutive months. I spent an average of thirty minutes a month on the phone with Directv. Going like, what the hell? <laughs> what are y'all doing? And so I've subscribed to MLB TV ever since then. Because, uh, you know, I cover the game kind of, you know, kind of, you know, for a few sites here and there. I used to do fantasy baseball stuff, you know, for, for uh, different fantasy sites. I have not watched more than a half dozen Astro games on TV in the last, I mean, not counting the playoffs. In the last 10 years. Because you cannot watch an Astros game on MLB TV. Because I live in Houston. You know who else you can't watch? The Rangers. You can't watch them in Dallas either. You can't watch the Rangers. Yeah, I can't watch the Rangers. So, and then the NBA does this too. So, baseball's not the only one with the problem. Because the NBA can't watch the Rockets, Mavericks, or Spurs. So, what am I doing? I mean, and your, your idea of a red zone channel, that would have been awesome this last year. Hey, Aaron Judge is up to bat. Is he going to break the Yankees' record? Something, yeah. Let's go watch. Oh, Otani is up to bat. Or Otani's on the bump. Let's watch him pitch. You don't care when the Angels hit because they suck, but let's just, you know, focus this game and just when Otani's pitching. Or, you know, whatever. Jordan Alvarez is at the plate. This guy is freaking awesome. Let's, let's watch him hit. That would that would be tremendous entertainment value, but yeah, baseball doesn't do it. So you know what are we doing? And 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 this is and and for people that want to complain about how long a baseball game takes, I want you to invite you to go to a college football game. Just oh, it's terrible. Just it's, one. It's uh, we went to the bowl game in in Houston with with Tech and Ole Miss, and I looked at my wife. And I'm just like TV timeouts kill this game. Absolutely. They absolutely. You don't notice it when you're watching on TV because that's when you go to the bathroom or, you know, whatever. But the amount of time wasted just standing around, waiting to come back from TV timeout, it's probably an hour. Oh, Oh, yeah, because we went to the Cotton Bowl this year. Uh, My wife's a Tulane grad. So, you know, we went and watched them play USC. Probably the best college football game I've ever seen live. Four hours. Yeah, that that was a great game. Four hours. Now, I don't think it was the greatest game ever played, but it was the greatest game I've ever seen live. And, you know, and, and if I were, you know, into, you know, arguing about college football, I would say that Lincoln Riley definitely lost that game more than Tulane won it. But, um, but the point is, is that 
Is anybody complaining about college football being too long? No, because it is an absolutely fantastic product. And, and I don't think baseball's too long when the game's good, right? And I think that gets back to what you're saying is during the Astros World Series this year, there were some four and a half hour games. There were, you know, the, during the World Series run in the first round against the the Seattle Mariners, that game went 18 innings. Oh, good Lord. Damn near six hours, right? I was on the edge of my seat the every pitch of the extra inning, especially because we could have lost at any point. And I say we because, you know what, I, I am a diehard Astros fan. I I I feel like I've suffered enough to be able to say we when it comes with them. But long story short, that was an entertaining game. Even though there was not a lot, a lot of offense, there was you were still on the edge of your seat the entire game because that game could have ended at any moment that the Mariners were at bat for nine straight at bats. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and we remember back then, uh, back in the 15, or was it 16 innings when uh, Chris Burke hit the walk-off home run? That was 18 as well. Oh, that was 18. I, I think I was actually at church, you know, prepping for, you know, confirmation prep. So, I'll be honest, I'm, I probably skipped class that day. Looking back yeah. on it now, I, I probably skipped that day. That may have been when uh, – I'm trying to remember if you were still in there at that time, but uh, yeah, I was, that, I was a sophomore, so I would have been second year confirmation. But I, I doubt I came in after that. Quite frankly, I mean, looking back, looking back no, now, I was the worst. Actually, the worst that it ever was, and this goes back to you know the popularity of everything. I was an EM on Super Bowl Sunday when the Colts were playing the Bears. I remember that game. The EMs outnumbered the people in the pews. It was the saddest thing. Now, we also, we're working life teen mass at, at five o'clock in the afternoon, yeah, too. Exactly. But the whole thing is, is that where is everybody? They're watching the football. Yeah. They're watching football. And these are people who aren't even football fans because, you know, they want to see the commercials. And that's fine. They want to see halftime show. Uh, that's fine. But the, with the Super Bowl, it's so different because it's only one day a year, and the party, the Super Bowl party, is what changes that to a social gathering and not just football fans. You can go and hang out with your friends and eat the food and dip and let you know the guys will watch the game and the women. You know, I remember my mom playing card games and stuff like that during during the game with the other wives. The, the Super Bowl party changes that so much because you don't have to be a fan of football to be a fan of hanging out with friends. Yeah. Uh, I remember we hosted one in our old house one year. I mean, it was this small little, you know, three-bedroom house. We got like 30 people jam-packed in there. It was just, you know, wall-to-wall people. It was nuts. But uh, to kind of, you know, shift back, I know uh, we follow each other on Twitter. And so I wanted to let you jump in here as we shift back to the politics, because you, you uh, brought up some things, uh, particularly about teachers and and one of our favorite uh, punching bags, Lauren Boebert, uh, tweeted something. And so I thought, you know, the, the, the listeners should, should hear a little bit of uh, our banter going back and forth on this. Yeah, so Lauren Boebert came out the other day, and, you know, unfortunately... For her first two years, or really fortunately for her first two years in Congress, she held no committee positions, right? She was a loud talking head. She was there to help fundraise for Republicans from from the far-right base that they have. But 
after everything that happened with Kevin McCarthy being elected speaker, that far right section of the Republican Party is now in pretty premier committees and committee leadership positions. So now all of a sudden, Lord and Boebert has some some power in Congress, and you know she's attacking the education sector, uh, and basically came out and and says that teachers shouldn't be able to share aspects from their personal lives with their students. You know, it should be Mrs. Jones. You don't know anything about Mrs. Jones other than that she teaches you math from 8 a.m. to 3 o'clock, and when she goes home, that's it. No pictures of anyone on the desk, no asking about spouses, no, you know, of course their big thing is preferred pronouns, so don't, you know, can't tell them your preferred pronoun. But at the end of the day, it's the asininity of not being able to share your life with your students is ridiculous. My, my wife is a teacher, and her school did a gender reveal for our baby with her students because they want to know the sex of our baby. They are just as involved in this pregnancy somehow as I am. And so the idea of not wanting to share your life with your kids is crazy to me because, again, I'm not a teacher. You are, but, but my wife is a teacher. and I've been to school. I've been taught. And I think the way, the teachers that I remember the most are the ones who could relate to us, the ones who could help us understand the material in a way that wasn't being portrayed in the textbook. And whether that's real life situations, hey, here's how I handle this in my life. You know, hey, I was alive during the civil rights movement. Here's what I saw when I was there. Hey, Miss Seeger, you know, if you're listening from a push in history. But, you know, long story short, the best teachers are the ones who could relate to you on a personal level. And the idea that that she doesn't want kids being related to on a personal level is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But then again, she's freaking crazy. Well, and, and she also, you know, took her GED three times and I don't know if she ever passed it on her own, but that's neither here nor there. Let me start off with the whole idea behind pronouns. Actually, I have a perfect example that I use on Twitter. My first name is actually Patrick. My parents wanted to call me Scott, but they didn't want Scott to be my first name. Sounds crazy. I don't know. Whatever, right? Now, the whole thing is you can call me Patrick if you want. I'm probably not going to respond all that quickly because that's not what people call me. Okay, and it's the same thing. Some teachers, you know, in our school will be called Miss or Mr. They won't call you your last name. They'll just say, you know, Miss or Mr. Some teachers don't like that. Some teachers want you to be a lot more formal. Some teachers don't, you know, say, hey, you can call me whatever you want, as, you know, as long as you're respectful. So it's a comfort thing. And that's where the pronouns are at. It's a comfort thing. If you don't want to use them, if you want to call somebody it, I don't know that they're going to respect you all that much. You know, but, hey, knock yourself out. What I, what I can say, 25 years in, and this goes with all of our educational issue framing, you know, that we're, t- that we're looking at. Critical race theory. Nobody's teaching that. It's a college, it's a, it's a graduate level college class. It's not, it's, it's not, you know, we're not teaching that. And so if we go into, you know, all these different things about, you know, this, that, or the other, you know, are we teaching, you know, people to 
Are we grooming kids? It's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. When I went through Lake, I had probably at least two or three teachers who were most likely lesbians. Did it make me gay? No. Did I care? No. Okay, were you a good teacher? So, you know, and I know teachers on the faculty that I they, that are gay and lesbian. It doesn't matter. Because I, I, what matters is, are you good at your job? Do you do a good job? And so what I will say, and I'm sure your wife will agree with this as well, there are lines that you need to draw with children. There are things that they don't need to know. Like if you're a wife and you have a fight tonight, the kids don't need to know about that tomorrow morning. They don't need to know about that. Because, you know, how are they going to, what are they going to do with that? The best thing I did see is I've seen teachers that have something, especially for the elementary kids, that have something on their desk that kind of shows like a pictorial uh, representation of what their mood is that day. That's probably a good thing. If I'm walking into a class and my teacher's pissed off about something, I'd like to know that before That's I walk into that. Bad setup. But the whole thing is that they don't know why. They just know that, you know, you had a, maybe you spilled coffee on yourself. Who knows? You, know, you, had, you had a bad morning. So I do think, you know, common sense says there are some things kids shouldn't know. Absolutely. You but, know, I, I... but for the love of God, if you're a guy and you have a husband, why shouldn't you have a picture of him on your desk? If y'all have adopted a kid, why shouldn't you have a picture of them on your desk? Yeah, well, and I think that's doing? where... That's where her outrage came from, right? And let's make sure we, we make that clear to the listeners is she most likely doesn't have a problem of a heterosexual female having a picture of her family on her desk. And she probably doesn't have a problem with uh, heterosexual males having a picture of their family on their desk. It is, as you mentioned, you know, someone who is gay or lesbian that is married and has a family. She doesn't want that on someone's desk. And that's, to me outrageous because if one's allowed then the other should be allowed and you can you can live a life without trying to indoctrinate or you know groom as they say um other kids you know I, and, and to me it's the 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 right that does more of the grooming more than anything you know i i, I sent you that video the other day of of the kid and his dad loading guns together oh, yeah. practicing for an intruder like this kid is literally armed practicing to shoot another human being and he's like seven you're gonna tell me that's not indoctrination that's not grooming but you god forbid if mrs jones is is gay god forbid you know it's it's ridiculous you know we are all human beings on god's green earth we all deserve love and compassion and support you know within reason if you're a, a fascist i'm probably not gonna love you but for the most part you know we're all god's children and if if we can't love each other and we can't send our kids to school trusting that the people who went to school to teach your kids are going to do what's best for them then then where are we at as a society is, is really where it's at at this point and it's 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 getting ridiculous and of course and here's the funny thing right so they don't want us setting up curriculum goodness knows you know shoot i went to undergraduate and graduate school but I, I don't know anything. I, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be deciding what we teach. Uh, I've only been doing it for twenty five years. 
I don't know anything. So they want to set a thing else. And in fact, you know, when you mentioned the whole thing about, you know, pitchers, Florida has outlawed that. Yeah. You cannot, you, you cannot do that in Florida. Uh, different states, like now they want to say in Texas, I think, um, and I can't even remember the, uh, the correct phrasing because I, I don't go into U.S. history classes this year, but slaves are no longer slaves. I think they are unpaid independent contractors, I think is what they came up with. Um, or maybe it's dependent contractors. I guess that would make more sense. But it, it, just stupid stuff, right? But here's where they here's what they want to do. They don't want us to write your curriculum. But goodness knows, you know how we stop a school intruder? Let's give guns to teachers. Right. I, I could not find an even worse idea. Because I could just hear it, you know, number one, just knowing myself on the intercom. Mr. Barzella is missing his Glock. Has anybody seen Mr. Barzella's Glock? But also, if the kid, if, if somebody's an intruder, it's likely a student or maybe a former student. I may know that kid. Do I have the, the guts to pull the trigger in an instant? Okay, but let's. But if we go into training, and, and I'm just going to explain this, you know, for all the you know, if you're a conservative and you stumbled into into this podcast, congratulations, you know, please stick around for this just one thing, right? When we came in, we were trained by police uh, for what we're going to do if we have a mass shooter, and so they actually came up and the, there's an acronym they call Alice, and the whole idea behind it is that you know we do what we think is best. So if the true is the shooters on the opposite end of the building, let's get our class outside. Let's not hunker down with the, the shooters on the opposite end of the building. Let's get out. If the shooters in our hallway, <laughs> let's not do that. You know, but let's make it hard for them to get in. So let's barricade the door. Let's grab some stuff to throw at them. And so we're practicing all this stuff. And so the police actually said to us, it said, if you should somehow wrestled the gun away from the intruder under no circumstances picked that gun up. They said, kick it under a trash can, kick it away, because what's going to happen? Police are going to bust in there, SWAT's going to bust in there, and they're going to see you holding the gun, and they're going to think, oh, crap, okay, is this a good guy with a gun, or is this a bad guy with a gun? I don't know, let's just shoot him. And so... That's the problem, is this whole good guy with a gun mentality. And to be fair, the good guy with a gun, for the most part, doesn't exist. It is so rare that a mass shooting or a shooting in general is stopped by a good guy with a gun. Like, less than one in ten. Oh, yeah, well, look at Evaldi, right? Evaldi just happened this last year. It took the police over an hour to get in. They're the ones with riot gear. They're the ones that have shields. They're the ones that have bulletproof vests. They have helmets. They have any kind of kind of weapon that you could want. And it takes them over an hour to get in. And see, the whole thing is, but they have, you know, they have immunity that protects them. And that's the other part that people don't quite understand. See, if you give me a gun, what happens if I shoot the wrong kid? What happens if I'm aiming at the shooter and I wing one of my colleagues? What happens if it's a kid I taught last year and I don't want to kill that kid and I freeze? 
under any of those circumstances, victims could sue me because I don't have that protected immunity that police officers have. I'm, if, if you've given me a gun, now I have a duty to act. But any way that I act, somebody's going to have a problem with. Because I guarantee you, 19-year-old kid comes in and wants to shoot up the school. I'm hero John Wayne teacher. I run out with my gun. I shoot that kid. I'm a hero, right? That 19-year-old's parents probably going to sue me. I shot their kid. I'm not a policeman. And these are the little things that people don't consider. But this is, you know, and, and when you talk about, you know, our favorite Senator Ted Cruz, of course, my favorite, his suggestion was we need door control. So what we need is one door at a school. <laughs> that was so dumb. So, so let, me, let me walk you through here, right? So today, for those of y'all who are not, you know, around in, in the Houston area, we had some pretty major storms. We had, you know, tornadoes going through. In fact, they were going to send, try to send kids home early, and we couldn't do it. We had to shelter in place. Uh, we've had churches like uh, St. Hyacinth in Deer Park has been virtually destroyed uh, by a tornado today. Uh, we have a Chili's on I-45 is destroyed. Uh, three or four of the campuses in our district have been damaged. So we're going to have our elementary kids at recess. They're at recess. They're at the back of the school. And here come the rolling storms. Do we go through a side door? No, 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 no. We don't have side doors anymore. Let's walk around the school, let them get poured rain on, maybe lightning strike them. You know, maybe the tornado comes and whips up a kid or two before they can get to that door. Does that sound like a good idea to everybody? Didn't think so. No, and let's and that's Sadly, Scott, that's the most unlikely scenario. You know, let's let's remind people of a little something called the the triangle shirt fa- the triangle shirt factory fire, where there was only one door, and actually they locked it. That made it worse. But again, only one door, and you can't get people out in a fire in enough time if you don't have appropriate exits. And in fact, I'm pretty sure fire code mandates how many exits you have to have for the amount of people that are in that building, and so. You know, it goes back to our beginning point of the show with with that kid in Little League who tries to pull every pitch and bring it back to the strike zone. There's Ted Cruz taking a terrible idea, a pitch that was way off the zone, and he's trying to flame, he's trying to frame it as a strike. And you know, that's I don't know if you saw today. Speaking of Ted Cruz, he came out with uh, he's going to put forth a bill for congressional term limits. Yeah. And, and while. I'm actually in favor of that, and I think, you know, most people probably would be. Ted Cruz is purposely putting this issue out now because he knows it's going to get shot down. If there was any chance that this actually passes, you don't see Ted Cruz putting this bill up there, but he wants to look like he's a guy who's not this crazy far-right loon, so he's, no, I'm all for getting the bad people out of government. I I put this bill up for vote, because that now goes on his record, and it's... He's just such a the, the the perfect example of a terrible framer, a a person who knows how to take advantage of the spotlight, who knows how to constantly keep himself in the limelight. 
is is Theodore Raphael Cruz. Well, and, and here's what gets me, and, and this is a phrase that I'm going to say probably, I don't know if once per episode, but I'll, I'll say it often. Great or perfect is the enemy of good. People are looking for a perfect solution. There are no perfect solutions to anything. Because you know, you know you know full well if you follow the news back and forth, you know what did Timothy McVeigh do? He he used fertilizer to make a bomb. So do we ban fertilizer? No. Do we monitor when people buy it? Yes. He had a guy that you know tried to put a bomb in his shoe, and and now everybody takes their shoes off. So when you look at what Ted Cruz is putting forth, especially with the door thing, can schools be designed safer? Absolutely. And if you remember old Clear Lake High School, I, I've, I haven't really spent too much time in new Clear Lake High School. I drove by it, but I, I remember, like, to me, Clear Lake High School still looks like, you know, the one that you and I went to. Right. In my mind, at least. How many different doors could we get in without anybody knowing about it? Six, I can think of. That you could, that would, that were always open back doors. Like there was the one by the tennis locker rooms that you could right. get in and out of real quick. Right. There was the one by the baseball locker rooms that you could get in and out of real quick over by right. the baseball fields. Then you had the the science hall had their own entry and exit because they would go outside to do experiments. Really, every wing had an exit on the end of that wing, right? So like the English right. area had a. a they were, and again, these were probably built for fire purposes, right? To get people out of the building safely. But all those doors for the most part, were probably unlocked during the day, if and I remember it, correctly. It was designed by astronauts, which proves that, you know, there are really intelligent people that should not be designing schools. Because the entrance to the school was actually supposed to be by where the, you know, the journalism, you know, the yearbook rooms were. You know, that big wide hallway? Right. But that wasn't the entrance when we were there. Or at least one when I was there. No, they had the one off, off Bay Area Boulevard, that big glass entrance when I was there. Um, so that, that was a little bit lighter. So we came in by the, uh, the choir room and the band hall was like the quote unquote front. That, became the bus. that was like the bus place for us. Yeah. So, but here's the thing. Our, our campus, because I, I teach at a, a, a career in tech school, we are the technology school. Every one of our doors are opened by our, by our batch. We don't have. So my wife's school is as well. We don't have keys anymore for at least external doors. So what does that mean? That means kids can't just up and up come in any of those six entrances that we were talking about at Clear Lake High School. You can design schools that way. Isn't that much? They are, they are designed that way right. for the most part now. Right. You can retrofit any of your older campuses yes. into that, and it wouldn't be that expensive because there are over 100,000 Publics and private schools in the United States. Could you imagine, like, the plan of saying we want two cops on every campus? That's nuts. That's basically, let's call it sixty grand a year per cop, right? Plus benefits, plus health insurance, plus all that, all that stuff. You're looking at about two hundred thousand dollars a year for those two police officers to be on your campus. And every statistical measure you could find shows that that is negatively going to impact the student's life on that campus. It leads to more um, juvenile records. It leads to more arrests. It leads to a worse quality of life for kids 
when they get off those campuses because a majority of the time when you and I were in school, a little dust up between two kids, a fight in the hallway, you go to the principal's office, that's it. Nowadays, one of those kids is, is probably going to go to court for assault and he's going to get a record because there's a police officer on that campus. Oh, sure. And, and are there even 200,000 qualified police officers anyway? <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, you don't want to pull them off the streets, you know, uh, where they're actually doing real police work. So and even if you do, those are probably the most violent ones. Exactly. Yeah. No, I don't, you know, I certainly don't want that. So here's the thing when you're looking at like an issue like guns, and this is where issue framing, I think really comes into play. Let's ratchet down the hysteria, ratchet down the hysteria over critical race theory, ratchet down the hysteria over pronouns, ratchet down the hysteria over, over guns and violence at schools. And what we're teaching our kids. Number one, if you wonder what is being taught in schools, ask a teacher. Don't listen, you know, to your cousin Jethro, who might be working at the 7-Eleven in Cleveland, Texas. He doesn't know. Ask a teacher. You know, ask us. Are you teaching critical race theory? Because the answer is no. But the other thing is, is that if we look at all of the aspects of an issue, we can find enough solutions, stealing a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, to, to look at this. Like if you're looking at school shooters, is there a mental health uh, you know, portion of this debate? Absolutely. Nobody in their right mind shoots up 20, 30 people anywhere. Grant that. Of course, the question is, how are they getting their hands on a gun? Did they get their hands on it legally? Okay, what kind of gun are they getting their hands on? It's an AR-15. You know, we can have Donald Trump Jr. You know, prattle on about what AR stands for. I don't care what AR stands for. It's an assault rifle. Maybe AR doesn't stand for assault rifle. Maybe it's the product name. Great, knock yourself out. But does anybody really need that kind of a gun? Um, I don't think so. And so, you know, but if you want to sit there and say we need more red flag laws, we need to take guns away from people who have you know documented mental illness. We need to take guns away from people who are, you know, spousal abusers. We need to take guns away from people who have been convicted of felony. Sure. Of course, we already have those laws on the books. If you want to sit there and say that, hey, if I see that my neighbor is building up an arsenal in this garage, I need to be able to call somebody and have something actually happen. Yeah, I'd go along with that. But, you know, the problem is, is that when, is when we shift, so when we sit there and say, okay, we've had, you know, AR-15s kill, you know, how many different kids in schools? But the problem's not the gun. Problem is the mental illness. But am I going to do anything about mental illness? Well, if I'm Greg Abbott, no, I will do something about mental illness. I'll actually cut the amount that we're spending on mental health. That's what I'll do. That'll solve the problem. Absolutely. And give more money to the cops. Sure. That's the what they do. That's what they do. They cut money from what is actually an issue, and they continually just increase police officers' budget and say, do you feel safe now? We gave the cops more money. They got more armor. So that way when they attack you, you'll be good. And this is where I hate, and, and I don't know who did this, but defund the police was absolutely the worst slogan that anybody could ever come up with. Uh, because you and I both know what they're talking about. Right. 
you and I both agree with what they're talking about. But your average typical Joe Sixpack thinks, oh, God, they're going to pull all the police off the street. No. What you're actually doing, again, is reforming your practices. Because here's what, and here's what I'm going to say about the police. I would never want to be a policeman. Brutal job. Difficult job. But here's the thing. And I'm sure your wife would say the same thing. If somebody from the community says, you're not doing a good enough job teaching, I might not like it, but I'm going to listen. And if there's something that I can improve on, I'm going to do it. Now, the question is, who do we want making those decisions? You know, I would say we would want teachers making the decisions of how we improve education. But to kill, I mean, there, uh, we have uh, criminal justice is one of the pathways at our school. And so we have formal police officers who actually teach the kids. And one of them ended up, he ended up getting fired. I'm not going to get into that. But he basically said, like, if you, you know, if you criticize a cop, you can't be my friend. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So we're going to allow some guy to put his knee on somebody's neck for 15 minutes? Does that sound like good police work? We have a guy walking around his car trying to get into his front seat, so we're just going to put a bunch of bullets in his back? Does that sound like good police work? Are we going to you know, have a no-knock warrant and just walk in and just shoot up the place, even if we're not sure what's going on, kill an innocent woman? Does that sound like good police work? No. But you know that's where, if we were framing it, going back to the issue framing, around reforming police practices, instead of defunding the police, I think we'd actually get somewhere. But as long as it's defund the police, we're not going to get anywhere. See, that one I'm not sure. Like, I do agree that the phrasing is wrong, right? I, I don't think you're going to get a majority of Americans to go along with defunding the police. But I personally don't think you can reform the police in the United States of America unless you got rid of every single cop and started over from scratch because there is a culture in policing in this country and it, i mean it goes back to the history of policing in this country it's it started with you know a combination of of slave patrols and it started with um you know rich people who wanted personal property protected and so eventually up north it's where the personal property came from and they didn't want to pay for it out of their own pocket anymore so then the public started paying for police and it's why you've always seen the police take care of the rich people's personal property it's why you see them during riots value property over human life and it's why they are not held accountable ever because they are funded to protect the rich and to keep the status quo so i personally i don't think you can reform the police i don't think they're redeemable, quite frankly. If you look at the percentages of crimes the police solve, it's lower than 50%. They don't solve crime unless they're like they're actually seeing it happen. For the most part, the police make people feel safer just because they see them like, oh, good, a cop, you know, no one's going to do anything to me because a cop drove by. But they add money to the city's budget through ticketing people. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're an illusion of safety. But, you know, you can look at let's look at like the LA Sheriff's Department. They're the biggest gang in Los Angeles. They are tattooed. They have to commit murder to get in, and they are a gang. And they are the biggest gang in Los Angeles. And so it's hard for me to see 
legitimate evidence. They are gangs. And it's, if you go, oh, it's just this one city. It's probably not happening anywhere else. Because the culture of policing, as you said, if you talk negatively about one cop, I can't be your friend. That's the attitude of all of them. That's yeah. the reason this stuff happens is because they refuse to say, this is wrong. I don't want to be a part of it. It continues on. It's continued on for, you know, the way we police this country hasn't changed in the last hundred years, realistically. Yeah, and I think uh, just to tell a personal story on this, and, and, and I don't know if we're going to edit out profanity or not, but I'm just going to have to to use it in this instance. So years ago, my, I had a second cousin who was murdered by one of the evacuees from Hurricane Katrina. So basically what happened, he was out at a bar, and he picked up a girl, and I think, you know, and this is where stories probably divide a little bit, Um, from the family, they said he was just driving her home. Is that really what he was doing? I don't know. So a guy knocks on the window, apparently that's this guy's girlfriend, sees her with my cousin, shoots him, he's dead. Of course, she knows who did it, but she's scared to testify. That's when the police chief at the time, and I don't think he was talking about my cousin's murder specifically, but Lee P. Brown, who also became our mayor, said, it is not our goal to solve every crime. And that's like, you know, I'm sitting there, what in the fuck are you talking about? So if I was the mayor, I'd be like, your badge, my desk, now. You're gone. But the thing is, is that I know, you know, we probably know, you know, both know cops who are, who are good people. But I think this also, this, the way I would frame this discussion is I would go back to where I said, perfect is the enemy of good. If we pass common sense reforms, is it going to make the situation perfect? Absolutely not. We know this. It's never going to happen. Will it make the situation better? Probably. I mean, if you change the practices, like for instance, qualified immunity. If we get rid of qualified immunity, if you beat up you know, a suspect, and that suspect wants to charge you with assault, you don't get qualified immunity. But I feel and, like we've tried to make those incremental changes throughout the last 20 years and what have they done i mean you're supposed to wear body cams at all times but how many officers somehow the body cam didn't turn on in the middle of me beating the crap out of that guy or you know the the no chokehold rules but they still do there's just and every time someone goes to to court or goes you know gets prosecuted for something it seems like 90 percent of the time they are found innocent and it was you know acting in self-defense but here's my question though and, and this is an honest-to-God question because I haven't done the research on this. Uh, the very first thing that I remember as far as policing was Rodney King. Which uh, I think he came before you were born. No, uh, it was like 90, I think. It was, or maybe 88, 89. It might have been right before, but it was not, not far before I was born. I'm pretty familiar with it as well. So that was the biggest outrageous thing that anybody had ever seen. Just to set the scene, you know, for those of y'all who might be a younger audience. Somebody with their camcorder takes a picture, and takes a recording video of Rodney King lying down on the ground, being surrounded by what looked like about six to eight officers, all taking turns beating him with their batons. And that's after he got out of the vehicle, hands up, surrendering. And the police were mad that he took them on a low-speed chase, like literally 
10 minutes of, of driving, he said, you know what, I'm, I'm coming out with my hands up. And they were mad that they had to chase him and beat the living crap out of him. See, and here's where I think we are with the police thing. I think with your, your body cams, but also with the, the advent of the, you know, the cell phone cameras, we are seeing more instances of police brutality. But I don't know that there's actually even as much police brutality as there was, say, in like the 50s and 60s, you know, especially with the civil rights movement, but also just regular policing. Because I think what happened, and, and you know, when you go into the NFL, for instance, you, you know, we've heard about, like, say, just today, just popped across. Charles O'Minahue has charges of spousal abuse. What's going to happen to him? He might be suspended for four or six games. We watch a video of Ray Rice punching his fiancée in an elevator. Ray Rice never played football again. What's the difference? I would say there is no difference except for the fact that we saw it. And that's where I think the policing has come, and, and I think it's a good thing for the most part, is that we saw George Floyd. We saw Rodney King. We saw, um, I can't remember the guy uh, in uh, Wisconsin got shot in the back um, when he was just walking around the car. Do you happen to remember? Yeah, exactly uh, we're at a point where I can't remember all of them. Yeah, Kino that was in Canosa. That was what you know spurred the whole Kyle Rittenhouse thing. You know, six degrees. That was Wisconsin, not West Virginia, though. Yeah, six degrees of crap, right? But anyway, we saw those things. We saw them on video. Somebody got it on video, and that's what. And I think it's that's both a you know, it's a double edged sword. It's both a good nope. thing and a bad thing. Because that was Jacob Blake, where they killed him yeah. for selling loose cigarettes. Oh, that was in uh, that was in Louisiana, wasn't it? Or is that New York? That was New York. I don't know. That was where they tackled him and they they strangled. They put a stranglehold on him. I think that was. But the whole thing is, we saw it. So it's a double edged sword. So number one, the good thing is that people are concerned now. Whereas you know, probably thirty, forty years ago, before Rodney King. Somebody mentions police brutality. Oh, come on. It couldn't be that bad. You're just making that up. Oh, you know, police are good guys. You know, come on, whatever. Now we're seeing it. That's now when people are clamoring for change. But I think we are, if you probably went through the numbers, I think there might be fewer cases of, you know, demonstrated, you know, abuses of power. It's not to say that it's good. But I think it's better. It's just we're seeing more of it. So it seems worse. I don't know. I mean, that's tough to it, – it's, we'll never be able to measure that, right? We can't know for sure. I, I personally don't think policing can and should continue the way that it exists in America today. I, I think that we owe it to our citizens to, to drastically change the way that we do things. You know, I think you, you nailed it with qualified immunity being something that has to go, but you know, civil asset forfeiture is another one. I mean, the, the police can literally rob you because they're like, you shouldn't have this much money on you. We're taking it. And it oh, yes. takes an unbelievable amount of jumping through hoops to get your own personal property back. And it's just when, when you look at the way the system is set up, you know, I have I have a lot of I have several police officers in my family. My 
my uncle was was one of the cops who went undercover in the 70s you know to help bring down a lot of the mafia and the rico arrests like police has been a part of my family but at the same time i have another cousin who works for the innocence project in the last three years she's gotten five people off death row for crimes they didn't commit and those are the only cases she's worked on she's five for five so that just a hundred percent of the cases that you're touching are people who are on death row wrongfully convicted of murder the police again aren't there to solve crimes they're there to either you know make you feel better and have quote-unquote justice served or close a case or if there's very little police work involved they literally saw the crime happen okay but they're not going out and they're not investigating things the way that law and order or uh you know nypd blue or the litany of police shows that have been propagandized into our mind have made us believe a certain thing about cops when in reality it's more like the show cops when they just want to tackle people and arrest them and that's what they want to do they don't want to actually solve crime and to me that's what's frustrating is we have set up a system where we have one belief in in hollywood and, and television have really led us to that belief but it's not really what police do here's and to kind of shift us a little bit because and if you can't tell by our last names tim and i are both italian you uh, actually Irish. You're, oh, come on. I am. <laughs> well, Costello, My dad owned an Italian restaurant, but I am actually Irish. Costello's an Italian name. Come on. It is not. There is a Costello, Ireland, in Ireland. It is, oh, my. Uh, you're, I you're, swear, you're, I, I met an Irish man on my honeymoon, and, and he backed it up. My parents have been to Costello, Ireland. Uh, I don't know if you've seen The Departed, Frank Costello, uh, in that uh, movie, Irish. So, uh, yeah. But we're both we're both Catholic, obviously, as we said yes. at the beginning of the program. And so, you know, if we look at you know issue framing, and and you're talking about uh, the Innocence Project, kind of jog my jog my memory here, where we frame the issue of life, particularly as it pertains to abortion. The conservatives love to call people pro-abortion. There is nobody in this world who is pro-abortion. There are people who are pro-choice. There are people who are not pro-abortion. But see, here's what kills me. And actually, you know, to me, the argument that innocent people are on death row is probably the least compelling reason not to have the death penalty. And it's a compelling reason. But, you know, the whole thing is that if if you're truly pro-life, you're pro-life from the very beginning to the very end. And that you know, that's no matter what, you know, somebody has done. And there are all kinds of documented stories. I remember it was a documented story of a guy that came in and killed a group of nuns and the nuns that survived prayed for him and argued against him having the death penalty. This is to me, and I, you know, even if you take two guilty people, how do we decide? And we're going to get into criminal justice, I am sure. But if you want to look at, you know, who ends up getting the death penalty versus who ends up getting life in prison versus who ends up getting a slap on the wrist, obviously it's going to be divided on racial lines, certainly socioeconomic lines. Who can afford the best attorney in that one? To me, I don't understand how you can sit there and say 
this person who killed people, uh, life. This person who killed people, uh, I got to put that guy to death. That doesn't make any sense to me. And of course, you know, and also if you look at what our church teaches, uh, certainly about wars of choice, that also, you know, falls under that. You know, certainly we should be allowed to defend ourselves if church, you know, teaches that. But, you know, should we go around to, you know, 5,000 miles away to protect an oil derrick? Yeah, don't know. I don't know about that. But see here, and here's the thing. We get into, you know, the abortion debate. That's where we have allowed the right to frame this issue. We've allowed people to say that people are pro-abortion. I'm not pro-abortion. If anybody asks me, and nobody has, I've actually known people who've had abortions. But if anybody were to ask me what I think, okay, I I'd certainly wouldn't invite them to ask me. But if they asked me what I think, I would probably counsel them to have the child unless they had a health risk that you know precluded them having the baby safely. That would just be me. But if they chose to do something else, that's their choice. And so that, that's where the hard line to walk as a Catholic. That's where I, I have a hard, a hard time. But, and, and this is where, you know, and, and I was going to get into a random Democratic Party. The Democratic Party and, you know, different groups, progressives, lefts, leftists, whatever, liberals, whatever you want to call them, have shunned Christianity for the most part. See, to me, I'm not a Democrat because, uh, or more Democratic, because, you know, in spite of the fact that I'm a Catholic, I'm a Democrat because I'm a Catholic. Because if you look at Jesus' teachings, the Democratic platform, while not perfect, nobody's going to call it perfect, because remember, perfect is the enemy of good. It is a lot closer to what Jesus taught than what the Republican platform is right now. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly... Jesus, like, by today's standards, would be considered, like, a socialist. Jesus did not like money. He did not like people. He didn't like capitalism, right? Like, Jesus would in no way be okay with the version of capitalism that we live in today. Like, exploitative capitalism is everything that Christianity was supposed to stand against. Um, and so it's it's changed, and I'm with you. I, I feel like I am, I, I can't call myself a Christian or I can't have, have grown up the way that I grew up and be a Republican. Like my, I have this argument with my parents who they've literally asked me, Hey, the, the way that we raised you, how could you honestly vote the way that you do? Or how can you have the beliefs that you do? And it's because of the way you raised me, I have the beliefs I do. And it's, I don't think the Democrats have decided they don't want anything to do with the, the Christian beliefs as part of their I, I just think that the far right, the Christian right have such a hold on that group that a majority of those Christian voters have made themselves into single issue voters. Yeah. That issue has become abortion. And again it comes down to framing because as you said, if you're really pro life, it's not even the death penalty. It's you would care about welfare. You would sure. care about, you know, helping kids you would care about quality education you would care about homelessness that's life right you know those are the things that matter in life and so you know to me i can't 
support someone who wants to trample on other human beings' rights just because they're anti-abortion. At the end of the day, there are single-issue voting is going to kill America. We have a majority of the right. I'm not going to say everybody, but a majority of the right are single-issue voters for either gun control or abortion rights. And they'll never vote anywhere else because of those two issues. Yeah, and that's where I think you know, Democrats have a built-in disadvantage. Uh, the people on the left, ha- left have a built-in disadvantage uh, because of what you just said. I mean, and I guess what I'm talking about is the framing of issues. I would at least attempt to frame an issue around Listen, this is the moral thing to do. Absolutely. And, and, that's, and, and that's where I think they're, you know, we're failing. But I think also what you pointed to with the single-issue voting is at the drop of a hat, the NRA has probably 100,000 people willing to write letters to Congress and call Congress, you know, don't pass this gun control bill. Problem those of us on the left have is that we care about a lot of issues. So I hear about the mass shooting in California, actually two of them. I hear about the mass shootings in California. For the next week or two, I might be really, really in on gun control. But then something else happens that I also care about, and I start caring about that. And we just don't have people who are dedicated single-issue voters on the other side because we have more of a wide breadth of stuff that we care about. And, and that's just, you know, something we're just going to have to try to overcome. And that's where, you know, we need a more coherent, you know, they, the right. And I, I remember listening to John Boehner uh, being interviewed by Stephen Colbert. And it was hilarious. He talked about the fact that he says, well, the left is, you know, a lot more you know, cohesive than the right. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? So the right, they, they you know, they vote no. Boom. Keep voting no. Keep voting no. The left, we have to sit there. We have to go, you know, to different caucuses. You know, we have to go to uh, to minority groups. We have to go to, you know, people on the far left, people, you know, progressives and liberals and, and, and people in the middle. We have to sit there and, and massage Mansion, you know, and see what he wants to do. And Kristen Cinema and see what she wants to do. There, there's no cohesiveness. I mean, that, and that's part of the problem, is that you need, you know, at least in the Senate, 51 dedicated people said, like, no, we are not doing this. We're going to do this right now. It would help to have more. It would help to have 60, you know, so that you can, you know, break the filibuster. And the House of Representatives, we had it, you know, and, and if people want to, you know, look at, you know, how we frame things. Look at how many bills the House of Representatives passed just in the last two years. And look how many actually became law. I bet you'd be shocked. We are not going to change things in this country, period, because there's just too much political gridlock. Things are not going to change anytime soon unless you literally start over. The, The filibuster is a manufactured aspect of, of the Senate. It's a completely misread um, aspect of, of politics that, quite frankly, is misused and misread. It's not supposed to be used the way that it is, but it's something we've just accepted in politics in America for as long as we have. And it's oh. just, it's 
It's not in the Constitution. It's not. It's it's not. And you know what's even crazier? If you look, things things in this country. You know, I I I don't like the Clinton family. I the the Clinton family killed the left. And if you look at when things really started to change in this country, and when the Democrats no longer had that cohesive message, it starts with Bill Clinton. And it starts with Bill Clinton trying to move the party more center, trying to move the party more right, working on policing, spending money on policing, mandatory minimums, all the stuff that he thought the, the Democrats were getting hit for, being soft on crime, soft on drugs, yada, yada, yada. Well, you know what? From FDR's era until the Clintons, we had a Democratic House and Senate. All Democrats. Until 1994. Until 1994. It has gone back and forth every single election for the most part since then. And we haven't been able to get things done in this country for the most part since the Clintons decided to move the Democratic Party right instead of what they should have done, which is stay true to the base, stay true to the people, and try and get some things passed that would make things better for people in this country. Instead, they were too worried about being called soft on crime, soft on drugs, and they moved right, and the Democratic Party has never had a cohesive message ever since it caused it to fracture because then you had the people on the left who were called socialists and communists and the biggest fighting in this country happens from center democrats and the left the the center democrats will try and shoot down every aspect of leftism or progressism that happens you know obama ran on progressive ideals obama ran on socialized medicine and he ran on you know, protecting a woman's right to choose. You mentioned we had a, a Democratic 60-40 majority in Obama's first term. You know what he didn't do was pass socialized health care. You know what else he didn't do was codify a woman's right to choose when he absolutely had the ability to do so because they have no consistent messaging. They have no consistent plan. All they want to do is use these issues to fundraise and keep back, getting back into Congress because they know a majority of the time nothing's going to pass anyway because of the gridlock that we have. Yeah, he dove uh, to the right faster than Brooks Robinson, you know, on a grounder down the line. I mean, it, what kills me is, and, I, and you know this because you were, uh, I mean, you're a good student. So when you go from post-World War II to probably the edge of Carter's first term, mm -hmm. that was the greatest era of prosperity in American history. It's also one of the and, highest. But, uh, I, 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 you stole my thunder. You stole uh, my thunder. So if you look, and, and I want everybody to look this up. Don't take my word for it. Don't take Tim's word for it. Look this up. What was the, the top marginal tax rate during the Eisenhower years? 90%. Yeah, yeah but don't believe us. Do your own, as the, the conservatives love to say, do your own research. Throw it in the Google machine. And, and see what, you know, and see what happens. So, and this is, you know, and we'll get into this and, and you know, this is probably the portion of the program we start talking about, you know, what we'll cover next time. And I think one of those next topics will be tax policy because uh, Kevin McCarthy just uh, released his uh, tax proposal where we're going to completely abolish the IRS. We're going to completely abolish uh, property taxes, uh, payroll taxes. All that's going to be gone. We're going to charge America's 23 cents consumption tax. 23 cents on the dollar. Now, of course, if you're here in the state of Texas, uh, which both of us are, 
we add the eight and a quarter and or eight and a half on top of that, and now all of a sudden you're talking about thirty plus percent on anything that you buy. But see, here's the thing, and here's what they're going to try and sell you. They're going to try and sell you that we're going to cut your taxes, and that's going to create growth. When if you look at between 1945-46 and 1975-76, that top tax rate was 90%. We had, we, I think the worst year we may have had is maybe 3% growth. Maybe. 4% or higher every year. Since then, since, you know, the Carter administration and Reagan administration, which, you know, to me, you know, if we want to talk, you know, go into deep dive, we can go into deep dive on Ronald Reagan. But their average growth, 2 to 3% ever since then. And look at, look at the social programs that the United States completed post-World War II to, say, 1980, which is when Reagan gets into office and, and things really, really change. Eisenhower comes in and the interstates are built, right? That's a huge undertaking for this country that costs a lot of money. And that's something that does not happen if the 1% are, are not paying their fair share. And lo and behold, today, look what's happening. The 1% are not paying their fair share. The wealthy aren't paying their fair share. And we can't go do these public infrastructure projects the way that we need to because the taxes aren't there. And they'll sit there and say we need to cut taxes to stimulate growth, when in actuality, you and I pay more money in taxes than Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos do. And that's absolutely insane to me. Well, and, and what's, what's insane about it, and so if you go back to Ronald Reagan's inaugural address, he has that famous line, very, very famous line, where he says, government is not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. That is issue framing at its very best because you know what's what's been the conservative long game and the conservatives are playing a long game the conservative long game has been government they're a bunch of idiots they can't do anything right they couldn't organize a, a, a two-car funeral so we need to cut government to the bone so what happens when you're growing up do you want to work in government no you don't get paid anything, and they're a bunch of idiots. So who do we get to work in government? We get people who are a little bit less talented. So what happens? Well, government's not as quite as good. And so all of a sudden, people start seeing it. It's like when, you know, people make jokes about the post office all the time. So what does Trump do? He brings in a postmaster general who cuts everything to the bone. All of a sudden, people can't get their stuff. Well, post office sucks. Well, yeah. When you don't fund it, it sucks. And it's it's frustrating, too, because growing up, you know, if you would have told me someone in my class was going to be a mailman, right? It was almost like, ooh, sorry to hear that. Didn't Life wasn't life didn't go the way you wanted to. Now you got to be a mailman. Why? You are providing an essential service. You're doing a good job. It's a government job. You've got benefits. It's, we've framed a lot of these jobs that you know, fed a family and allowed a wife to be a stay-at-home mom for 30 years, we then framed them as non-skilled labor, cut the pay, cut the benefits, got worse candidates, as you're saying, then after all that's happened, say, look, it's a terrible service, we should get rid of it anyway. Well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at the end of the day when, you know, 20 years ago, people, it's, if you had told us the benefit of, of having a good 
government workers when I was in high school and, you know, those things had been preached, well, then maybe people my age would have wanted to work in the IRS, would have wanted to work in parts that want, you know, would have wanted to have some of these jobs. And it isn't frowned upon to be a mail carrier because you know what? It shouldn't be. It's you're providing an essential service to people in this same, you know, for example, garbage collectors. It was like that was the threat when you were in school. If, uh, if you don't get your grades up, you're going to be a garbage man. Why is that a bad thing? You know, you need people to collect the garbage in your in your city. We've just we framed every job that doesn't have a four year degree with it as a bad job. Well, and and I've always toyed with the idea. Of course, you know, health health probably is going to keep me from doing. But I've toyed with the idea of running for office someday. Somebody's going to dig up this podcast. I, I, I personally want to run as well. Somebody's going to dig up this podcast, and they're going to they're going to run this comment. And if they do. I don't care. I would turn that Reagan quote on its ear. And basically what I would sit there and say is that in today's America, corporations are not the answer. Corporations are the problem. And no, that doesn't mean I want to be a communist or a socialist. It just means that we have ceded way too much. Citizens United you know, was the biggest one. We ceded way too much to corporations. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that, you know, and, and if you study Adam Smith and you study capitalism, the whole idea around Adam Smith is that you have individual sole proprietors doing everything. My great-grandfather was a cobbler, came over from Sicily. Okay, so he's making shoes. He's repairing shoes. Of course, now you don't hear about anybody repairing shoes nowadays. That's just, one, you know, one of those things that went by the wayside. But is he going to is he going to cheat a customer? No, cuz he's a sole proprietor. He's going to do the very best he can. But what happens when we sit there and knock down 100 different shoe salesmen down to let's say 3? Well, now we can kind of collude. We can price fix, we can give you a crappy product. We can do just about anything you want. And you look at all of our industries that's where things have gone. Okay, look at, like, say, just breakfast cereals. How many different major manufacturers are there of breakfast cereal? There's what, Post? Post and General Mills. General Mills and Nabisco, maybe? I don't know. Uh, uh, I mean, Kellogg's is pretty big, too. Kellogg's, so three. But at the end of the day, though, you'd have to go look at the parent companies for those three and see how many are actually owned by the same parent company, because the odds are it's probably only one or two. Even if it's three, even if they're separately owned, because we're just going to assume the very best, what kind of quality product are you going to get out of that? Right. Because the thing is, if I, if I want to buy a TV, and you know, we just bought one, went to Best Buy, where else am I going to go? I mean... Yeah. And so, Amazon, right? Yeah, exactly. And and uh, I don't know. There's some things I don't want ordering, and there's something I just don't trust about the internet. I'll order some stuff, but uh, you know, like I, I don't know. Like people buy clothes on the internet. I don't know how they really do that. Um, oh, I buy all my clothes at Costco. I'd I'd have to look at them and and you know, just figure out if they're gonna if they're gonna fit. You know. But, my wife does that though, but she'll she'll send it back. I'm see, I'm the problem. I don't ever send it back, and I got a bunch of stuff that <laughs> doesn't fit just sitting in my wardrobe. Exactly. So, and this is, and so the point is, 
So yeah, I'll give you just one little example. So we bought uh, we bought a TV. You know, our other TV started to have some lines. It was getting about over 10 years old. So I paid like less than 300 bucks for this TV. Um, they decided to make me a, a lector, you know, at, at mass. They said, you have to wear a suit. It's like, damn it, I got to go out. It must be one of the early masses. No, no, this is the this is their version. I'm at St. Clair's now. This version of Life Tea. They, oh, wow. Stepping it up a bit. Yeah, okay. they're they're stepping it up. And so it's like, damn it, now I got to go out and buy a suit because the last suit I bought, I think, was when my daughter was born. Right. She's 16. So, where do I go? I I go to Joseph A. Bank. I pay more for that suit than I did for that TV. Suit will probably last you longer. Probably will. You know, because I'm not going to be wearing a suit that often. I mean, you're talking weddings. I mean, my, you know. my wedding suit was Joseph A. Bank as well, uh, on sale. Father's like, you know, Fourth of July weekend sale. It was three hundred bucks. Yeah, mine was about four hundred, somewhere around there, for a suit. And you know, I'll wear it, you know, maybe once or twice a month, whenever I read, and that'll be it. But see, here's the thing: if I could go, if if it was back in the Adam Smith days, who all your capitalism buddies, that's who they love, Adam Smith. There's a hundred different suit makers. There's a hundred different tailors. Thousand different tailors. Am I going to have to pay $400 for a good suit? No. Because they know damn well that there's a, just a guy down the street who's going to give it to you for cheaper. But now, where am I going to go? I'm going to go to Men's Warehouse? Yeah. K&G Superstore? K&G Superstore? We don't need, they, that one closed down in Clear Lake. I don't know if you knew that. Uh. I got my homecoming suit from there. Yeah, I remember getting, you know, shirts and ties from there because, you know, they were actually affordable. That's right. not, they, they, they're gone. So, and, and this is where, you know, there's a lot of framing that goes into this. Uh, I mean, I love telling stories. Um, one of the, the people that worked with my mother, my mother taught third grade for over 30 years, uh, was a speech pathologist. Her husband owned a toy store individual owner of a toy store if you could imagine that so i remember i had this little apparatus that would show like a, a film a rudimentary film like the, the little engine that could it had a little record player on top that would play the audio for the film and so you know once i got old enough i stopped using that for you know, for its original purpose, and I, you know, I was buying forty fives. This thing would break once a year. We take it down to this guy; he'd fix it. Who fixes toys? Is it, you know anybody who fixes toys? No, buy a new one, return yeah. it, hope we get our money back. See, and here's the, but here's the funny thing about framing. The economy shifts. History has shown us this. We don't deliver ice door to door anymore. We don't deliver milk door to door anymore. We don't even, you know, we don't have people that fix TVs. Well, you throw it out, you buy a new one. So when we're looking at industries like, say, coal, which I, I saw the John Oliver special on coal, something I recommend everybody search it on YouTube if you don't have HBO. Did you know that more people work at JCPenney than in the coal industry? It, I, I've seen that one as well. I love John Oliver. But yeah, the coal industry is, it's, it's a non-starter. It's a dying for industry. For every state but one. 
It's a dying industry. And so, you know, did we blame Democrats or Republicans when we stopped delivering milk door to door? No. Did we blame you know Democrats or Republicans when Toys R Us closed down, although they're starting to open up some isolated stores here and there? Or that individual mom and pop shops closed down? No. Did we blame them when we're not delivering ice door to door anymore? No. Because things shift in the economy. Things die. Industries die. New industries crop up. And so instead of looking at those coal miners and saying, you know what, even if we did nothing, your industry would be dead in a decade. Let's train you to do something else. Now, now what we're going to do is we're going to blame Obama and say Obama killed the coal industry. What, what runs on coal? A grill. Okay, so, okay, there's one household item. I don't think trains run on coal anymore. I, I don't think, think so. I think probably power plants. And yeah, stuff I think they're doing stuff like that. Yeah, for electricity for power plants, which you know we can get into the whole Texas fiasco in a, a future episode. But, but this is but this is where we get in and to tie this all in a nice big bow because we've been here a while. Issue framing. This is issue framing. So instead of talking about things honestly, what we're going to do is we're going to frame it in such a way that you're going to blame one person or another. So it's just like, you know, defunding the police. We're going to blame this group or that group. Critical race theory. We're going to blame this group or that group. Pro-abortion. We're going to blame this group or that group. No, we're not talking honestly about issues. Because coal is not an issue. Coal's dying. And when you get right down to it, so is oil. You know, there's going to be a day when we're not going to have oil. Yet what we have, the, the state of Wyoming, I don't know if you saw this, they, so stupid. they passed a, a resolution to outlaw electric vehicles. And you know who they, you know, it, it, this is performative politics, you know how you know this? Do you know who they CC'd on this? Elon, probably. No. Governor of California. Uh, Gavin Newsom. Yep. So why are we doing that? What? And I read the article where they tried to have their rationale of you know how you know how spaced out the towns are and how inefficient it would be to build these uh, charging stations and substations and things like that. But at the end of the day, a majority of people do their charging at home, and those substations are built and paid for mostly by Tesla and then they charge people to use them and they get their money back. And so again, it's it's fake outrage, it's issue framing, it's giving the Republicans in Wyoming what they think is a is a win against the libs. You know, they're you know, they're screwing the libs. And that's at the end of the day, that is Republican politics is finding a way to piss off liberals when realistically, and I can say this, I feel like I'm left of liberals, liberals will piss themselves off. They'll find something happening to get mad at and and talk about. As you said, every two weeks something happens where it's tough to keep our attention on one thing because there's enough going on in this country that you're going to get upset. You don't need to create fake outrage over electric vehicles. Well, and, and this is nuts. See, and this is, you know, do you all have a Bucky's near you all? I'm sure y'all do. We so. do, yeah. You notice that Bucky's sells their gas for cheaper to just about everybody? 
Yeah, it's because they want to get you in the door so you buy all the other crap. Exactly. So Same thing as Costco with the with the rotisserie chickens and their milk prices because oh. they know you got to walk past all the other stuff to get to that chicken. So how difficult would it be to build charging stations at Bucky's? Instead, I'm sure it'd be perfect because it takes 20, 30 minutes for your vehicle to charge on one of those superchargers. Exactly. You go and, into Bucky's, you get your chopped beef, you get your you know, your cinnamon roasted nuts, you come back out, you eat your, your sandwich, and your car's done. You buy your t-shirt, you buy, you know, your sweatshirt, you know. And, and here's the thing, and, and, and I'm sure somebody eventually is going to stumble on a going rate that we can sell the service to you for. They'll, they'll figure it out. There's a price point where this works. And Bucky's, what the Bucky's will do is Bucky's will do it for a penny or two less than that price point. Because what they know is that you're going to go inside, you're going to buy a bunch of stuff. But the you know, gas stations can do this easily. But charging station, this isn't hard. And what you, and, and they'll figure it out. You know, do you want to charge you know a quarter for every dollar for every ten minutes or you know whatever they want to charge. And in the name of capitalism, right? If you were a good capitalist, you would have already done it because that's an opportunity to make money that no one else has. And so, again, if you want, if the right is the bastions of capitalism that they say they are, they should be allowing somebody with a good idea to build the Wyoming version of Bucky's and do exactly what you're saying. Well, and, and think about this. So, folk, uh, faux outrage, you know, the French faux. We're going to sit there and complain about electric vehicles. We're going to complain about alternative fuels. And then in the next moment, we're going to complain that gas prices are too high. Does anybody ever, you know, see if the synapses are firing there in the brainstem? You know, can't we put two and two together here? You know, if you don't want to pay $4 a gallon for gas, well, shoot, why don't we come up with something else? I mean, I, you're looking at somebody, I've, I've got solar panels on my house. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in alternative energy sources, and I've said for years my next vehicle is going to be electric because um, it, it's just, as you said, things change. Technology changes. We're not getting our milk can delivered. We're not driving around in carts and buggies. I mean, things change, and it's, you know, it's, it's sad because America has always, I feel like, been the country that's dragged its foot feet with change we don't like change um but at the end of the day the world is ever changing it's ever evolving and you know in, in the words of of jeff goldblum life finds a way right and we're going to continue to find a way to live that's going to make our lives easier that's the point of technology that's the point of you know learning and growing is is to find a better way to do things and if we can be a cleaner living nation if we can use less carbon-based uh, fuels and leave a, a, a better footprint on this earth. That should be our goal as human beings: is to do less damage, leave it better than for you know for the next person than, than we had it. That's kind of how I was raised. But yeah, things have changed, and it's now get yours while you can and screw everybody else. So think about this: so 1985. Um, through like the late 80s, we get the Back to the Future trilogy. Sure. So think about what 2015 Back to the Future had for us. 
lot of Cubs World Series wins. Well, the, at least one, which they were right on. Uh, they you were. Know, about a year off. Off of the year. Yeah, off by a year, but, you know. I think they had, like, Jaws 47 was uh, was playing in the theaters at that point. Well, but what killed me, you know, two things that killed me about that movie series, people talking about, oh, what, what would it be great, you know, to do tram travel like that? So I said, no. It, like, when he was sitting there saying, you know, you could go see the Declaration of Independence. It's like, you know, signing a Declaration of Independence. It's like, no, you can't. Your machine goes to Hilldale, California, and that's it. Right. But no, but, you know, here's the point, you know, to pay off. We had hover hoverboards. We had cars that ran on Mr. Fusion. <laughs> if you remember, we can pour, pour trash and beer into it, and that, that runs my vehicle. What happened to that technology? We don't have it. And this is what kills me. So you, you, the, the space industry starts in the mid-50s, roughly. You know, probably maybe the early 50s you saw, you know, some beginning things. By 1969, we've landed somebody on the moon. Now we're still in, you know, low Earth orbit. And that's more than 50 years later. What are we doing? And that's, you know, and, and so I think, you know, you say America drags its feet. We used to not be that way. We used to be innovative. There is a, I mean, it, it goes both ways. I mean, we literally had to shame people in this country into using crosswalks because they wouldn't stop walking in the street and getting hit by cars. And I mean, that's where the term jaywalking comes from, where uh, a, a jay was basically a country bumpkin back in the day. So by calling it jaywalking, you were basically saying you're a dumb redneck if you don't cross at the corner of the street. And so, I mean, it literally took. 10 years of cars being invented for people to figure out to stop walking in the streets. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's true. And, and I, there were there were groups that were against the telephone that were, you know, were determined that this was going to to ruin, you know, American society. And, you know, and I guess when you talk about cell phones with, you know, students in school, maybe they weren't that far off. But <laughs> um, I think I that's, that's, that's not fair. I think I think the cell phone was okay like if you look at the time period when i was in high school the flip phone the sidekick like that's probably where cell phones should have stopped like the moment they became a personal computer in our hand oh, where you yeah. can do anything and everything it became very dangerous the but, idea of, of having a phone with you for emergencies that was a pretty solid plan oh yeah and, and my, we took it in a crazy direction yeah in my day it was the bag phone that was the uh you know, the cell phone back when I would, if, if you had a cell phone. Those were fancy. Those were not yeah. cheap. I mean, I tell you what, the car phone was a nice addition. Oh, the too. car phone, you could have an answering machine on it. says, I'm at home right now. I mean, you, you could do, you know, all kinds of stuff back then. But I think, you know, in terms of innovation, not necessarily human behavior, because human behavior is what it is. But I think in terms of innovation, I think, you know, we've had a lot of innovation in this country's history if people are properly motivated to do it. And to me, the electric car is a kind of a perfect example of this. I mean, Elon Musk is in many ways an idiot and a jackass. Yes. But he's not he wasn't wrong on this. You know, this is the wave of the future. You're gonna get it wrong, you know, just like when any new car manufacturer puts out a new model of a car, the first model usually sucks. There's all kinds of problems with it. Electric vehicles, no different. You know, when they first started putting them out, there you know, wasn't a whole lot that you could, you know, that you could get in an electric vehicle. But now, heck, my my sister has an electric vehicle. It's an SUV. Yeah. So I, I, 
I think now that you're seeing Chevy and Ford and and the main car dealers make both gas and electric versions of the same vehicles, that was the turning point. The moment that it became your mainstream automakers, that's when I think as a society it was more socially acceptable. It used to be, I mean, when, when you saw a Tesla, you were like, oh, that guy's rich, you know? But when you see a Chevy a Volt, you don't think that that's some rich guy. That's just somebody driving an electric car. Sure, and and you know, and when you go back to when cars were you know first made, and you talked about jaywalking, but they didn't have gas stations. This is something, oh, yeah. Crank those bad boys up. I mean, this is something that you know you had to. That was an electric vehicle at that point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think we should ask the Flintstones about how we run on foot power. You know, that would be uh, pretty cool too. But it, it would solve obesity in this country, that's for sure. Yeah, you would hope so, right? At least you have strong legs. But we would we would be the deadlift record holders at every Olympics if we all had to Flintstone it around here. And that, that, that's but the whole point is, is that, you know, when you look at, you know, the cars, you know, there's an evolution to this thing. And so the people are sitting there saying, well, we don't have the facilities to, to charge these vehicles. Like, of course you don't, because that stuff takes time. But, you know, if you really are determined to make a go of it, you're going to make it work. Absolutely. Well, Scott, we're we're coming up yeah. on on two hours here. I think we originally planned to do an hour, and you know, sometimes conversation gets good, and, and we keep rolling. So, yeah. Um, I think we've got a lot of great stuff to get into, and as and as we've mentioned a couple times, we wanted to open with the idea of framing, um, because it's going to drive a lot of the discussions that we have on this podcast. A lot of the political things that we're going to discuss have been framed by politicians, by mainstream media, both left and right, to where you guys are most likely coming in viewing them already with some sort of media slant or some sort of slant already. There's very few times where uh, you can just learn the news without being told how to feel about it. And that's why we wanted to start with framing and make sure that um, we really had a good in-depth discussion on some of the different scenarios and 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 types of framing that we're going to deal with in this show yeah and absolutely and i think you know if we at this point like i said in the beginning current events are going to drive this show there will be something that happens in between now and next week that you know is going to you know drive the show i mean and i don't know what that is yet but i think you know obviously you know we have we've kind of teed up to use the golf analogy there we kind of teed up some issues that, you know, we can drive next week. Obviously, uh, we talked about uh, the tax plan that the Republicans have put forward. We can we can take a look at that. You know, we've obviously brought up some of the issues of baseball. We kind of nibbled around the Astro scandal. We can maybe dive into that a little bit more, you know, in a future episode. Um, but, you know, primarily, we're going to try to talk more sports. We talked a lot about politics this episode. We're going to try and bring in more sports uh, just so we can – show our listeners that there is a tie between politics and sports. Yeah, that's definitely going to be the goal of the podcast is going to be to find a way to relate a lot of what's happening politically in the world uh, to the world of sports. And, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of politics today. um, But again, with the discussion of framing, that's that's going to kind of be the, the nature of the beast there. Scott, why don't you uh, real quickly remind everybody uh, about your blog and where they can find you. All right. So first of all, my personal blog, 
Uh, I do the Hall of Fame index.com, which I actually, it sounds like it's about baseball, but actually I've kind of shifted over to politics. Uh, a lot of those columns find their way onto uh, Juanita Jean's uh, Booty Salon uh, under a pseudonym. I won't, you know, throw that out there just so, you know, we can kind of preserve some secrecy. And I also write about the Texans at Battle Red Block. You can find me at Tim underscore Costello 10 on Twitter. Uh, and again, you'll find this show in your Apple, Twitter, Spotify feeds uh, every week. Again, it's been an absolute pleasure. We appreciate everyone who has uh, joined us here for this inaugural episode and has stuck through till the end. I know two hours, uh, long time to talk, but you know, once you get into a good discussion, sometimes it just keeps rolling. Until next week, we have been the Snap Hook. 